Hey there, I'm Raji Sohal, and this is our podcast for The Sunday Show. We find out what's going on with the BC job market with a recruiter. How's the employment rate? And what are companies looking to hire seeing out there amongst candidates? And with Christmas around the corner, as well as the last month of 2022, we get the top book recommendations for the year, just in time for you to pick up a few to put under your tree. But first, the province announced an unexpected, huge surplus. We're talking billions of dollars. Rob Shaw was my guest. Does he think the fiscal excess gets used up by critical services like healthcare or the drug crisis? Does that happen quickly? Or does it get tossed at debt management for the province? Let's find out. Well, it seems there is no shortage of big news in BC policy and budgets lately. The latest being on Friday when British Columbia Finance Minister Selena Robinson announced some surprising news that BC posted a $5.7 billion surplus in the first half of the province's fiscal year. This is up from an earlier $700 million surplus. So how should this money be spent and how will it actually be spent? Rob Shaw joins us now. He's a political correspondent with Czech News. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. And go Team Canada. Are you watching the game? I am watching it on Twitter as I was. <laughs> of course you are. Of course yeah. you are. You live on Twitter, Rob, so I, that makes sense. Well, that makes me sound really sad, but yes. <laughs> so I know you've had a very busy past week with uh, Premier EB keeping press on their toes with all these big new announcements. And the surplus one is significant. So just how did we end up with this fiscal excess? Yeah, I mean, it's not just that we're suddenly $5 billion ahead. We're actually $10 billion ahead because this is the second update right. to the budget that we got in February. And the budget in February is we're going to be $5 billion in the hole. So we've done this stunning turnaround, this like, you know, uh, the kind of thing that causes the finance experts in government to light their hair on fire because things have changed <laughs> so much. Although I guess in this case, the they're letting their hair on fire in happiness. I don't know if that's a thing you can do or not. But, but basically, like a lot of this is technically complicated and is going to bore people. But Ottawa collects your personal income tax and the corporate income taxes. And it sort of gives provinces an estimate of what it thinks taxes are going to be based on the data that came from sort of the previous year. Because when you file your taxes in the spring, and then you get your returns back. The provinces don't get that information from last year's taxes until the summer and blah, 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 blah. Anyways, the point being that BC and all the other provinces, according to the finance minister, got this incredible news from Ottawa recently that, hey, you know what? People's taxes are way better than that last year than we thought they were going to be. And they're not as bad as people were expecting from the lag out of the pandemic. And so here's a gigantic... Scrooge McDuck style mini, you know, like pit of gold coins that the provinces have. And suddenly British Columbia has a $5.7 billion surplus projected for the rest of this year. And the finance minister called it kind of a shock rebound, but she also warned that maybe it lasts, maybe it doesn't last. No one's really sure. We're, We're in the middle of inflation and interest rates are going up and there's talk of a recession and there's still global uncertainty. So looks good. Um, I'm sure it's making David Eby very happy, but uh, is it? Can you bank on this? Uh, I, I don't know. Hmm. And then Eby's already spent a good chunk of it already, hasn't he? 
Yeah, so David Eby has learned a very important lesson over the last year in BC politics. Because remember, last year, British Columbia actually ended up with a surplus of uh, just under $2 billion, yeah. over a billion dollars. And the thing about the way the government works is if you end up with a surprise surplus at the end of the fiscal year, it poof automatically goes to debt repayment. You can't take it at the last minute and spend it on something like healthcare. It's just by law goes in the debt. And the Democrats got really stung last year by that because they announced at the end of the year, hey, we got a couple billion in cash lying around and everybody goes, great, hire some doctors, hire some police officers, fix the many crises we are seeing today. And the government goes, oh, sorry, actually, it, it, uh, <clears throat> it went on the debt. David Eby will not repeat that. It does the New Democrats no favors to be dealing with crises that require funding and throwing money back on the debt at the end of the year. So he is spending this surplus as we go along. And we've seen him drop, uh, I think it's about $1.2 billion on rebates and public safety funding and all sorts of things in the last uh, you know, week. And I expect that to continue. If he sees this money on paper, um, this money is getting spent and it gives him a lot of room to do things in the healthcare sector, for example. Every time you do something in healthcare, it's super expensive. So he gives him room there, gives him more room to come back on RCMP, which he just announced, uh, to fully staff the RCMP in BC. And I expect him to use all that runway because, uh, He's got a lot of big files on his plate right now. He does. But so, Rob, you think that $5.7 billion surplus, you think he's going to work through that quickly in the, the next four weeks? <laughs> I think, well, yeah, I think, remember that our, um, our sort of fiscal year, the, uh, the way it works for the provinces, it ends in March 31st of next year. Right. And then the next fiscal year starts in, in April. So you okay. get the budget in February, but the budget doesn't start till April. So he actually has until the end of March to play with the money we're talking about now. And I think it will go up even more. So between now and March, he's got a a big runway to spend this. And in February, he will give us a whole new set of numbers for a budget that will start in April. That will be all David Eby, all of his promises, all of his things, all of his goodies. So we're going to get a a kind of flood of different streams of spending. And I don't think he is worried about ending up – in the, a little bit in the red, you know, I think British Columbia, he's calculated British Columbians aren't so worried if the province is balanced, if it helps them not have to wait for 13 hours at BC Children's Hospital sure. <laughs> if their child is sick. Yeah. Who cares about the, fin- the, the deficit in that situation? And I think he's, he's going to be calculating a bit on that as he's spending. Uh-huh. So, Rob, we talked about Twitter earlier, where you live, Mm. and you wrote on Twitter that the surplus weakens the province's argument that it needs the feds to step in to solve the health care crisis. Because if we are sitting on all this money, we should be spending it and using it towards those to making those critical changes in our health care system. Yeah, the prime minister and his finance minister have said, listen, provinces, if you want to fund your health care system, do it. Don't be giving people back $100 checks for BC Hydro rebates that cost $320 million or, you know, low-income tax rebates um, that cost $500 million. Spend that money on health care. Don't come. And the, and the premiers are going to the prime minister saying, we're in a crisis. We have no money. We need help on health care. We need Ottawa to increase its share. And I think this will definitely weaken those arguments. There's no excuse for the BC government 
as to the problems in the healthcare system right now, if they can be solved with money, not all of them can, but if they can, there is money there. And, uh, you know, continuing to point to Ottawa as the boogeyman uh, is going to be a harder and harder thing to do when you've got cash sitting in the bank. Now, BC will say it's not fair that we have to spend more on healthcare. Ottawa is supposed to be a partner. If we spend more now, it's built in forever. It's like, subscribing to netflix you're never going to not subscribe so you got to build in that amount every month if you build in more healthcare funding for doctors you're not getting rid of them a year from now you're baking it in yeah and they don't want to do that but mm. still it's a it's a tougher sell for sure and then you mentioned this hundred dollars back from bc hydro what do you think like most taxpayers are wanting to happen with that money now yeah, well, look, I'm, this is the thing about rebates. Is they're never good enough, right? The ICBC rebate, you remember that from earlier in the year? People were kind of like... Ah, People even, were offended it, by those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't even fill my tank up with gas, right? right? Your hydro rebate maybe covers one month of hydro, but it costs government an insane amount of money, you know, like $320 million for that hydro rebate for 100 bucks a bill. And it's great politics in some way, uh, but it's also really bad financial um, uh, calculations. And I don't see the EB government, you know, they can do a little bit of it, but they tend to want to target relief. They want to hire more officers for policing. They want to hire more doctors. They want to solve crises a little bit better than just giving you cash and then you looking at it and going, is that it? Uh, that's that's the political calculation they're trying to make. I'm not sure we're going to see another cash rebate from this government, but um, you never know. Yeah, the rebates do seem kind of paltry at the end of the day. All right, yeah. Rob, that's all the time we have. Get back to the game. <laughs> okay, all right. Thanks for having me on. It's time for us to talk about employment rates in the province. For a while, there was an exaggerated labor shortage that we have uh, reported on extensively here at NW over the last several months. And now Statistics Canada says job vacancies have risen 3.8% in September. So to put that in perspective, that's almost 995,000 positions. For more, let's welcome Henry Goldbeck to the program. He's the president of Goldbeck Recruiting. Good morning, Henry. Morning, Raji. Nice to be with you this morning. Thank you. Does that mean you're not with a computer screen or television screen watching uh, soccer right now, football? (laughs) Starts at 8 a.m. <laughs> there you go. Perfect timing. The plug Perfect for timing. all of our listeners. I love it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch that while we're broadcasting. Mm. Well, in general, what are we seeing with job vacancies in BC right now? Well, I think what we've seen is uh, across Canada in October, we had a strong increase in jobs, especially private sector jobs. That number of 3.8%, I was trying to calculate exactly how they came about it, okay. but it, it's, it wasn't that significant because overall, jo- it's a percentage of vacant jobs in overall jobs. So I think the more important statistic is the unemployment rate, which in Canada it remains low. Uh, it decreased in, in, in October. The job vacancy stats aren't out yet for September, but the unemployment rates and the employment rate statistics are out. And uh, October rebounded quite strongly across Canada in terms of full-time jobs, almost all private sector jobs, which is really good. Uh, employment had been flat for the past four months after strong, strong growth. I think May we had 
we hit some peaks in terms of uh, high employment and low unemployment, and then we had a pretty flat four months. And then October has been a very strong month. Uh, in British Columbia, uh, in British Columbia, it was fairly flat in October, and uh, and for the past four months. But BC has got a very low unemployment. You know, we have. Uh, right now, this October was 4.2% unemployment rate, which was very low. And the the September, it, our unemployment has been going down since August. It was 48 in August, 43 in September, 42 in October. So I think what we have is a, a still a very strong employment market. That's good. That's good news. That's nice to finally hear some good news there. Yeah. <laughs> and why is there this demand, though, from the private sector? What accounts for that? You know, manufacturing, manufacturing jobs added a lot. in uh, And uh, manufacturing, construction, scientific, professional, service jobs, uh, accommodation, I think, accommodation, hospitality, uh, were the, uh, uh, and retail were the sectors that decreased slightly. But we saw saw mostly a strong rebound in um, manufacturing and the professional services related to that. So interesting. You know, just anecdotally, um, when I am out and about, it's hard to uh, shut me up. I'm always talking to people, whomever I can. And when I'm in restaurants and bars, uh, cafes, in retail, I always ask the workers what they're seeing in terms of uh, finding employees. And it's only been very recently that I've heard uh, managers tell me that they're getting a lot of people applying again. And they were missing that for many, many months. Absolutely. I think that we heard the same anecdotally and and really I hope I run into you in a Starbucks somewhere <laughs> that you ask me something. So uh so but we've heard anecdotally the same that uh, the production workers, warehouse workers, those types of positions, companies who had really been struggling have found that easier. We haven't seen that yet at the professional managerial level or the higher paid positions. They're, they seem still to be very difficult to fill, and um, but we'll, we'll have to see whether the October trend of employment affects you know the anecdotes that you start hearing. Sure, so, yeah. And, and for those higher paid positions in corporate, Henry, what are they doing differently to recruit, to attract new employees? I think, I think they just have to put, you know, what they're doing is paying more attention to it, right? So they, they need to have more and more firms, for example, have in, in-house uh, recruiters as opposed to, as part of their HR, or if it's a smaller firm, their HR gets good at recruiting, so they can't rely just on posting for positions. So they'll either either use you know use their own networks, have have other management thinking about recruiting, have employee referral programs. They'll hire have an HR person who is proactively reaching out to candidates, or they'll hire outside recruiters like us who will, you know, proactively headhunt candidates for them. And then they they just need to um, 
they just need to pay more attention to those candidates as they're speaking to them. You know, transparency, treating candidates with respect, with transparency, so they want to work for them as opposed to, you know, assuming that people need a job and, and will, and will t- take a job. I mean, that's long changed, but there's even more attention being paid to how well, how well uh, companies treat uh, prospective new employees in the uh, in, in the interviewing and uh, selection process. Henry, you mentioned their proactive headhunting. Is that when you're reaching out for um, for a company and you are starting to meet potential candidates when there's not even necessarily a position for them to fulfill? Absolutely. What does that and, look like? Well, really, it is uh, getting to know the person in a personal level. So from our, our firm, for example, we have, we have a, a great team of researchers and recruiters. So the researchers are, are identifying candid, potential candidates, people who may have the skills and experience that our client's looking for. And then the recruiters would reach out to them very respectively by email, in-mail, phone call, to see if they're interested in speaking with us. And then if they are, then we'll have a conversation with them about where they're at in their career, what they want to do, are they happy, what are their skills and experiences to see if it's a match for the position that we're trying to fill. And that's what that's what re- most recruiters are doing on a daily basis. And, and uh, we have to be good at it these days because even though there's there are more jobs to fill, um, everybody's working, and so uh, and so it takes a personal effort and hard work to do that successfully. And then also I wanted to ask you about the amount of time people are spending in a position, in those more professional uh, positions, because I am hearing increasingly of people uh, leaving a job due to dissatisfaction for whatever reason uh, quicker, sooner than they would have, say, five years ago. Well, I think because there's more options. I think, you know, people are feeling more empowered because of it, it is an employment market. So if if someone if someone is not happy, if you have dissatisfaction in your position, you're probably already receiving outreach by, uh, by recruiters or you're seeing postings or your friends in the same field are telling you about positions. So there is a sense of... Um, uh, of empowerment that you're not, um, you, you know, you have options if you're not happy, and and there's nothing wrong with exploring options. I think, I think people should, you know, should be. Um, I'm not sure if cautious or careful is the right word, but changing jobs is an important decision. So all factors should be considered. You know, there's the the uh, compensation factor, but there's also the scope of the job, the challenges. Uh, are, are you in a field? Would you like to change uh, the direction of your career? Would you like to take on more responsibility? Uh, is this a chance to uh, to to add new skills in in a new position, as well as as increasing your compensation? And for other people, it might be as simple as well. Uh, I could have my I could uh, divide my commute by my commute by half. Sorry. So there may be convenience factor or better benefits or a daycare close by. So all of those things. So there's there's opportunities to improve your work situation in any in, in the area that's important to you, and, and so people should take advantage of that.
Yeah, yeah. I think people approach uh, their career uh, maybe less, uh, they're less risk averse than perhaps they used to be. I'm seeing a lot of people are, are willing to jump around a bit more. Henry, thank you so much for the chat this morning. Raji, thank you so much for your time. And uh, go Canada. <laughs> go Canada. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. It's time to talk books. It's about that time of year when the best of lists come out. And Marianne Yazegin joins us on the line now with her top picks of 2022. Marianne is the manager of Book Warehouse and Black Bond Books. Good morning, Marianne. Good morning. So, Marianne, I understand that when you give your recommendations, people listen. (laughs) And I've heard that anecdotally. I've heard it all over the place. I know so many people that frequent the shops just to get your recs. So let's start out by talking about maybe fiction. What is your pick there? Well, I have so many fantastic picks from this year. It was hard to narrow it down. So some of these are mine, and then some of these I uh, called on some of my colleagues to ask for their top picks as well. So for fiction, we've got some great ones. The first one that I want to recommend is called The It Girl by Ruth Ware. Oh, that's the mystery, right? Mm -hmm. This is a very, very twisty, turny psychological thriller. Okay. About a friend's murder? Yes, yes. So a couple of uh, young women met in Oxford. April is the it girl. She's bright, vivacious. Everyone loves her. But by the end of the year, she's dead. Ten years later, her friend Hannah learns that the man accused of April's murder has died in prison. And it brings up all these memories and questions about what really happened. The one thing I love about Ruth Ware books is that she keeps you guessing the whole way. I've read so many of her books, and I have never once guessed who the the bad person is. Okay, that sounds so good. And Night Ship by Jess Kidd. This is one that's based on a true story, I think. It is, which is just fascinating. So in 1629, uh, an orphaned girl is bound for the Dutch Indies on the ship Batavia. She's curious and adventurous, and she continues going on all these searches for a mythical monster. Uh, But a mutiny occurs on the ship, which is the true story. They end up shipwrecked on an island. And then going forward to 1989, a lonely boy is sent to live on this same remote island where his late mother once lived, and he discovers the story of this shipwreck. And you start to see parallels parallels in between their stories. It's just a fascinating story about adventure and friendship. I loved it. Oh, it sounds so good. And then British author Kate Atkinson uh, came out with Shrines of Gaiety. I have not read it, but I have heard major things about it. So Kate Atkinson is just one of our staff favorites. I've read so many of hers. You might remember her titles, Life After Life, Transcription, the Jackson Brody series. So good. This one is actually recommended by my colleague Holly at our Ladner store. We're in London in the Roaring Twenties. It's a country recovering from the Great War, and London has become the center for nightlife and celebration. And we meet our main character, Nellie Coker. She's a ruthless and ambitious woman. She wants to advance her six children, but of course, success breeds enemies. Holly says that this book is just so good. There's elements of mystery, deception, skullduggery. It set against a great historical background. So I'm so excited to read this one as well. Nice. And then uh, Anne-Marie McDonald, the name that I associate with just instant number one national bestsellers. She had a new one this year, too. She did. And this book was, uh, I believe, about eight or ten years in the making. And it is a big book. It's almost 800 pages. Oh, my goodness. 
it's fantastic. Don't be daunted by the by the size. <laughs> Pick it up and read it. You know, you said 800 yeah. pages, and I just started to think about the days off and dividing them in terms of pages and how many pages I can accomplish over the holidays. <laughs> That's a great idea because I can't say enough about this book. I, I highly recommend it. It's late 19th century. Uh, we meet our character, Charlotte Bell. She's growing up in a vast and lonely state bordering Scotland and England, and she's been kept from the world by her caring but overprotective father. She's very curious and intelligent. Uh, There's been some mystery in her life. Then we go back to the story of her mother who passed away in her childbirth. And bit by bit, we uncover secrets and mysteries about her family. It's I can't tell you how engrossing this book is. I'm, I'm saying it's my favorite book of 2022. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Definitely going to get that one. That was Fane by Anne-Marie MacDonald. Uh, Marianne says that was her top pick for 2022. And then The Still Life by Sarah Winman. I have heard called Big Hearted. I've heard it be called Beautiful. One friend uh, who's a writer herself told me she just got so lost in it. Can you tell us about Still Life? Absolutely. And I totally agree with your friend. This was my best book of 2022 until I read Fane. Okay. So Still Life by Sarah Winman. It's, I've read all of her novels. This one is my favorite of hers. We're in Tuscany in 1944. A young British soldier meets an older British woman who's working on recovering stolen and damaged art from the war. Then he goes back to the UK to a boozy London pub. The story goes back to post-war Florence. It's just this beautiful, sweeping story of love and fate. Her characters are so unforgettable. You're, You're laughing on one page and crying on the next. Oh, I love that. I love an unforgettable character. There are some characters that I've read in not even this last year, but in previous years that I sometimes will just think about. I'll think about what is that character doing now? If she, if her life had continued on since reading her in that book, what is she doing now? Okay, let's hear also about uh, this series by Richard Osman that's got tons of attention in 2022. So popular. So Richard Osman's series, uh, the first one is The Thursday Murder Club. The second one is The Man Who Died Twice. And then the third one that's just come out is called The Bullet That Missed. These are feel-good, funny mysteries about four friends in a retirement community. And in the first novel, they just meet to uh, to chat about crime. They f- figure themselves little crime solvers. But then a local developer is actually found dead, and they take it upon themselves to solve the case. So if you want a lighthearted, fun sort of mystery, definitely pick those up. And then in terms of nonfiction, um, these were all books that I did on your list that I did manage to get around to reading this last year. One of them I found really, really challenging. It's by Jeanette McCurdy. Can you tell us about that one? Yes, I, I'm so glad you read it. Yeah, I, I thought this book was just fantastic. But like you said, really difficult to read. Um, it's uh, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. You might be familiar with her name as a, a child TV star. Yeah. And when she was uh, a popular child TV star, she was completely controlled by her mother uh, to the point where her mother showered her until she was 16 years old. And this caused a series of eating disorders, addiction, and unhealthy relationships throughout Jeanette's life. And it's only when her mother died that Jeanette realized how bad things really were. She ends up going to therapy, quitting acting, and embarking on a journey of recovery and is finally able to decide things for herself for the first time in her life. It's, it's you know, it's a devastating story about how terribly things can go wrong for young fame. Yeah. But it also ends up being really inspirational and about self-empowerment. Yeah, and overcoming your past despite it all. And uh, The Myth of Normal by Gabor Maté. 
the myth of, so Gabor Maté will be familiar. People will know his name. His book, In the Realm of Hungry, Hungry Ghosts, is yeah. fantastic. This one is written with his son, Daniel Maté. It's the first time they've written a book together. This book looks at how Western countries who pride ourselves on healthcare care systems are actually seeing an increase in chronic illness and general ill health. Uh, prescription drug use, mental illness, other troubling issues are on the rise. So what Gabor Maté wants us to understand is that uh, our understanding of normal is actually false. It doesn't consider trauma and stress of everyday life. So what he wants to do is untangle common myths about what makes us sick. It's a very compassionate and important book. Yeah, it's compassionate. And also, um, it's so interesting how so much the way he describes and explains it, it actually comes across as being common sense, even though it's the first time we're hearing it written about in that way. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about this book, like, again, this is a huge book, but you you go back to his books constantly. It's not something you read once and put down. Like you right. say, you, it's, so, it's so much common sense that you'll keep going back to this book. Marianne, I could talk books with you all day, but that's all the time we have for this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.